Welcome to episode 250 of Canada's Pinball Podcast. I'm your host, Canada. I can't believe we've made it to 250 episodes. It's taken a while to get there. It's taken a while to get there. We have now officially put up more episodes uh, than Coast to Coast Pinball. Um, We have put up a lot, a lot of pinball content, but I am so happy that we are at this milestone and that all of you out there who listen to this show appreciate what we're trying to do, which is just give you an unfiltered, I think, honest dialogue about this pinball hobby. And 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 I appreciate, I really mean it, because as much as I take time out of my week and my day to make this pinball podcast, all of you out there also take time out of your day when you could be doing something else to listen to this pinball podcast. So I really appreciate it. So what I have for you on this special 250th edition is I have an interview. I have an interview with a man who is part of a pinball company. And no, it's not Gary Stern. No, it's not Jersey Jack. It is Robert Mueller at Deep Root Pinball. And there is a lot of curiosity, a lot of speculation about what is actually happening over at Deep Root. So we're going to have a really good hour-long conversation about Deep Root Pinball. And I think you're going to enjoy it. I think you're going to hear some stuff that is new. I think you're going to hear some tough questions that I ask. Um, But I think you're also going to come away after you listen to the whole thing with a couple thoughts. I think you're going to be like, these guys are kind of crazy. Their ambitions are kind of larger than life, but they really seem dedicated to proving people wrong. And let's face it, the number one person they're going to prove wrong is me because my very first assessment of this whole thing is it would never work out. And as I began to talk to Robert over the months, I started to just turn a page and turn a corner on how I felt about this company and what they're trying to do. Now, I haven't seen anything. The proof is always in the pudding in the pinball world. You have to deliver. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. And we all know that it's always more difficult to get machines in boxes and into consumer homes than it is to say you're going to do it. But that being said, they're not taking pre-order money. They're not asking you for anything other than to sit back, hold on, and enjoy the ride as they try to bring new innovation into the pinball world. And what I do like about the company is they aren't satisfied with the current state of pinball. And this is something that I sort of dance around a little bit, but I think pinball really is in need of a little shakeup. And I don't think the current pinball companies that are out there are really pushing the hobby forward in the right way. I mean, heck, we have just off the presses, um, Monster Bash Remake is now confirmed by Chicago Gaming Company, one of the worst kept secrets in all of pinball. I am excited to see what they do with the package, but it's a remake. We're looking backwards to look forwards. Uh, You know, I think the remakes are great. I think it's going to be an amazing game. Uh, but it's nothing new. Uh, there will be new parts to an old game, but it's still, it's still, we're not looking that forward. And I do believe that if you're complacent in any hobby or any industry and you just start to accept what you get, you start to accept what you get. And that is, you know, I, I can't tell you when I see people just paying $9,000 for Star Wars 
and, and you know, and paying all this money, $9,000 for Guardians of the Galaxy LEs. And we just have to accept what we get um, from the big boy in the hobby, Stern. Uh, we wait forever for Jersey Jack to deliver. And it's just the hobby needs new players that try to do new things. Now, look, will they succeed? I hope so. I don't know. But I'll tell you this. I'm curious as to what they deliver in pinball. And my ultimate belief in life is always the same, that only people who are angry change the world. You have to be somewhat unhappy about what the current pinball landscape is giving us in order to make something different and better. And I just don't think uh, we're getting our money's worth in the current pinball landscape, all right? I'll leave it at that, all right? Now, speaking of getting your money's worth, a little bit of news before I air the interview with Robert. I couldn't help but once again get dragged into the big Lebowski thread. And I kind of look at this whole thing like this. How many different ways does Dutch pinball need to die before people will finally accept the fact that they're probably not going to get their games. And I get that some of you out there are so emotionally attached to this and really want your product. But here's the thing that, to me, has me starting to just pull my hair out to when are we going to learn? When are we going to finally learn that all of these failures, they end the same? The companies run out of money. There is no money. Now, here's what's happening at Dutch, and it's very similar to what happened at Highway, is that they're asking you politely to please, here, here, it's the same three things. We're out of money, so please don't ask for refunds. Please don't threaten to sue us, because if you sue us, the money we're going to need to dish out refunds and and, and, and engage in lawsuits will most definitely bankrupt the company and you will get nothing. And please just be patient, even though you've waited years for your product. Now, the problem is this, is that certain people are still getting refunds. And I saw on there, uh, you know, I think Rare Heroes said one of his friends just got a refund today. And let me tell you, it's no mystery as to how these people are getting their refunds. They are threatening to sue them. They're threatening to go to Universal if they don't get their refund and, and open up a lawsuit against Dutch Pinball. So Dutch Pinball is giving money back to people who do that. And you're in the same situation that you were in with Highway, that if all these people start to make threats and they make a run at the bank, uh, it's over. But here's the problem. Here's what sucks for everybody involved is the same thing happened with highways, that people who want a refund, who were promised they could get their money back on a product that they invested in, um, though, you, know, you can't blame people for wanting their money back. And then you can't point to the 10 guys who got their refunds as you're the reason why they never made the game and without your request for a refund, we would have got our big Lebowski. That is total BS, total BS. And the thing that everyone just needs to stop speculating, they're out of money. Okay, so here's the question that everyone who's in on this game needs to realize. Where does the money come from to pay ARA for the games that were already shipped and the games that ARA built? 
right? There's no money. There's no money to buy the parts for, for Zytec to start making the new versions of the game. There is no money. All that Dutch and, and, and their new correspondents have said is this, that their lawyer was successful in getting ARA's legal people to back down a little bit. Okay, so let's say they, des they decide, ARA decides not to sue Dutch pinball or not to get into litigation. Okay, but there's still no money to pay the bill. What do you think, ARA is just going to like send those games out? going to start making big Lebowskis again when they weren't even paid for the machines that they had made. There's just no money. So you can't make money. There's no way to materialize new money. You know, they're trying to sell play fields and aprons and artwork to, to maybe get enough money to refund these people, but there's no money. And the other part of the Dutch correspondence that is a real head scratcher is they say, we haven't paid ourselves a salary since January of 2018. 2018 was this past January. They didn't ship, last time I checked, any big Lebowskis to anybody in 2017. So let that sink in, people, that they paid themselves a salary for an entire year when you didn't get anything. So the question then is, how much salary did they pay themselves that all the money is gone? That there's hardly any money to make the games. How do you pay yourself a salary? I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. And this is not me rooting against you early achievers. I wanted you to get your games. I think you deserve your games. But are we not seeing the same exact pattern of highway pinball, of Dutch pinball? And it's while the situations are different, the overarching story is the same. When you're out of money, it's game over. It's game over. I saw someone suggest that the most asinine solution ever, which is they should start selling machines for $20,000 just to make profit on those, those machines and use that extra money to make up the lost revenue. So let me, let me ask you a question. You think someone's going to buy a $20,000 Big Lebowski and then when they get back to even, Steven, what, they're going to start charging $10,000 for the game? So someone's going to pay twice the price just so the game has a chance of survival? And then that person loses $10,000 on the value of their machine if they spent twenty grand on it. I just, I just, you can tell I'm a little bit like just perturbed because this is episode 250. And you think by now, you think by now, after all of, all of what we've discussed, that pinball people would stop just having all these irrational hopes and dreams and, and desires to salvage companies that clearly mismanaged the funds. And they took your money and your money did not go to making a machine. I don't understand for the life of me how Barry and Yop could take all of your money when they already had the machine design, they already had the manufacturing going, and then they can't figure out how to just get you the game. And now we're on this two-year journey that's ended up with nothing but bullshit. They mismanaged your money. They want you to believe it's all ARA's fault. It's all their fault. Okay, I don't buy it. 
I bet both sides are somewhat to blame, but how did they fuck it up this bad? How did they get to the point where people are starting GoFundMes to pay their legal bills and early achievers think $20,000 games will, will bail them out? They're pouring more money into a failed venture at this point. So that's it. How many different ways can Dutch die? How many different ways can early achievers try to conjure up new hope? And how many times can people make excuses for people who took your money and didn't get you a machine, but yet they paid themselves? You understand that? They paid themselves a salary during an entire year where they didn't deliver you what you were promised. How does that sit well with people? Anyway, let's, let's turn a page. Let's turn a page and get to this interview. And like I was saying, I think there is going to be at least, you know, there's going to be disruption happening. And Deep Root is going to disrupt the pinball marketplace. I think it's, I think it's a good thing that companies are trying to disrupt. Um, you're going to hear a lot of their goals are very, very ambitious. Uh, I, you know, in our experiences of watching new companies get into pinball, nobody has quite succeeded in quickly ramping up to a large scale manufacturing pinball company. Uh, but there's a team working on it. This isn't J-pop in, in, in his own room, like tinkering on stuff. He, they've got people. They've got experienced people that are part of this company. And I can't imagine all those people would be sticking around if there was no progress being made. And I haven't heard anyone bailing or jumping out of the company and saying, I was at Deep Root for eight months and it's full of shit and I'm out. I haven't heard anyone do that. So there must be a reason why. You know, the whole, how many times do we hear people at Highway say, you know what, Andrew doesn't know what he's talking about, and I, I left the company, and then people made excuses for him. So we're not hearing that. So let's air this interview. Let's see, we, we talk all about, we even go into like Stern stealing the Godzilla license from Spooky. We go into a lot of stuff, and I really do think you're going to enjoy it. I think you're, I'm going to get some feedback on this one. I hope you guys don't feel I went too easy. I, I mean, I have nothing personal against Robert. I, I, I always do my interviews in a respectful manner. Uh, he, he isn't somebody that is, again, taking anyone's money and not delivered. And he's trying to make uh, what John did right. And look, I mean, this is as good as a chance as it's going to get because John has a team of people surrounding him that know how to do stuff. So let's see what happens. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to 250 episodes of me rambling on about pinball. I could not have done it without each and every one of you supporting me, and I definitely could not have done it if all of those people on Pinside You Hate Me didn't tune in to every single episode. I appreciate it, everyone. Enjoy the interview with Robert Mueller. If you have any feedback, you know where to send it, canadapinball at gmail.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome to our episode 250 of Canada's Pinball Podcast, a very special guest, um, Robert Mueller of Deep Root Pinball. Robert, welcome to the show. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris. It's nice to be here. You know, I feel very honored. I, I don't know what I did I, to uh, deserve it, but well, I, thank you. Yeah, you know, as, as I was looking for guests for 250, you know, Part of it is no one else in the industry will probably talk to me after I've, 
you know, been so vitriolic against some of the boutique companies. But I'm glad we're, we're talking because I think, you know, over the past few months when I've looked at the pinball landscape, I think your company continues to be one of the companies out there that people are the most curious about. So I, I look forward to having this, this conversation. Beautiful. Uh, I, you know, there's no answers that are off topic. Uh, I know that you have some great uh, thoughts and I, I know you probably want to ask a lot of questions. And so I'm ready to, uh, to be under the gun. So. All right, let's, let's get right to it. So how did you ultimately decide that, you know what, I want to start a pinball company. I mean, you were well aware of, of the challenges that lie in front of starting a pinball company. So at what moment were you like, you know what, I'm just going to do it? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I started, uh, it all goes back to, uh, to 3D Space Cadet back from Windows 95. And I was always a video game guy and um, as, or boy as I was growing up and never was really into pinball. And uh, but I just love 3D Space Cadet, you know, that virtual table that came with Windows 95. And it was just something about it that just caught my eye. But I kind of, you know, once you start upgrading, you you can't get it back, uh, et cetera. And then they take it out of the, the new uh, OS. So uh, I would say end of 2014, uh, I was looking for a new game for my iPhone and I came across Pinball Arcade and just got so hooked. And so I said, well, um, I wonder how much one costs. And so I. I called up Nick Parks at the pinball company and asked him, and I ended up being at the right place at the right time. I bought a huge collection of about 18 games um, off of a guy that Nick put me together with. They were in amazing condition. And so I had the bug. And so I basically, from Nick, I got uh, introduced to Jack at uh, JGP, and I got introduced to Charlie, um, got introduced to J-Pop, uh, Ben Heck, and uh, you know Terry at uh, Pinball Life, Dennis Nordman. Uh, Greg Ferris. And so um, I, I think things went very quickly there because I was looking for a new avenue, uh, a tech venture that would make sense for, uh, you know, the Deep Root family companies. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to make it all work. It, it didn't work out with uh, any of the, the people at the time. So I shelved it. And uh, but always wanting to come back as I was quietly watching the industry uh, and I just saw so many weaknesses um, and so many people getting away with doing really um, stupid things. Uh, and so uh, I decided to make the plunge in October of 2016. My right-hand man, Craig, uh, I pulled in. And we just spent a couple months just just going back and forth about uh, all the innovations that I had in my mind. And we wrote them all down and we created source documents and looked at marketing and looked at the competitors. And we did some market research and kind of decided what kind of company we really wanted uh, when we built our built this pinball project up. And um, a little bit later, here we are. So you you don't mess around. I mean, you went from zero to eighteen games right away. So you 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 were you became a collector immediately. Um, Robert, talk to me about. And we talk a lot about marketing on the show. And 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 I think it's interesting. Um, you know that you were looking at the pinball landscape and you notice certain things that could be done better. What what kinds of things did you see other companies doing? That sort of gave you the the drive to, to try and do it a different way. Well, I think you've alluded to this uh, in some of your previous podcasts, and that you know, pinball is one of those unique impulse buy industries where people cannot uh, leave a dollar in their in their wallet or the pocket. You know, they just have to spend it. And um, what it's really created is uh, is a feeding frenzy for manufacturers who can put out 
you know, inferior products, uh, in my personal opinion, um, you know, restrict innovation, uh, and they can still make a decent profit by, you know, making bad marketing or otherwise, uh, you know, uh, unwise business decisions. And so this is a this is a perfect opportunity for me in trying to get into tech and, you know, my, my family companies here uh, in building up something uh, in, a, in a small industry, something that was within the budget uh, and that I could do it really well. And just just by doing things just simply and using my noggin, I could out, you know, market, out business, out manufacture, out design anyone else that's been in the, the industry ever. So um, this has been a great opportunity um, for for me and everyone else who shares my vision, who's working hard every day behind the scenes here to to go out there and prove that and shine. Right. Now, Robert, you know, you know, I mean, there's people out there that are going to hear a phrase like the ability to outmanufacture a juggernaut like Stern, who's pumping out 50 games a day, 35 years of pinball experience, plus, you know, 60,000 square foot facility. I think it's that big. How do how do you go from I'm not into pinball in 2014. You know, I'm, now I've got 18 games. Now I'm going to like say I can outmanufacture someone who's been doing it for decades. So like walk me through that mindset of we can do that. Like what, what knowledge, you know, do you guys feel like confident that you can then produce at that level? Or are you interested in being as big as Stern? I mean, where do you start the company? Well, I'll answer your second question first in that I'm not really interested in competing against any of the other pinball companies. I mean, they're, they're pretty much irrelevant to, to what we plan on doing. And I think, you know, Stern has, what, 90 95% of the market. Uh, they're going to have a tough time even if, you know, we were to take some of that away from them. Uh, and I think that we'll compete on some levels. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, the more pinball, the merrier. Um, so I, I, I don't want to take down any company. I, I want uh, I want all these companies to succeed and and uh, do the best they can do. But up till now, they really haven't had a lot of competition uh, and they've gotten away with a lot of mistakes. And so uh, I while I don't wish them you know the worst, uh, I think it's going to be really hard for them to try to compete against someone who actually came into it built from the ground up the right way at the right time. And the right marketing message and the right design, and we're going to show all that uh, here pretty pretty shortly. And I think we're gonna you're going to see a lot of this you know money that's burning hole in pockets uh, start to flow to deeper, just because I think we've really focused on what people really want on pinball for so long behind the scenes that we've really gotten you know to the to the core nut uh, of what makes pinball uh, an amazing opportunity, even a p- impulse buy for some people. Uh, in the industry, as far as the manufacturing is concerned, I I, I think that I think Dennis on uh, Eclectic Gamers podcast kind of put this the best is that I he kind of stated and I, I firmly believe and that's that's how we've operated here at Deep Root is that people make pinball out to be a lot harder than it really is. Of course, there's a lot of components and there's a lot of very difficult complex components that go into both designing and manufacturing a machine. But at the end of the day, many people on my staff have extensive ex- manufacturing manufacturing experience. I'm a jack of all trades, so I, I, you know, within a 10 minute period, can be talking about gold mining in Africa, and then hit on mechanical engineering issues, uh, and then go to electrical, and then programming. I mean, this is just, you know, how how we deal with our day to day affairs here at Deep Root, is we're always collaborative, 
We're always on our toes, and uh, and we're always dealing with a lot of different subject matter. And we've had a lot of opportunity um, since we started to really think about how we wanted to do it. Like, you know, we're we're done with quad assembly. That's just too too old for us. We're now going to octo assembly, for instance. And so these are the types of things that. And, and starting from the ground up, we don't have all of the old traditional kind of ways that are that are uh, impediments to us having a lean, agile manufacturing opportunity in a much smaller space than something like you know someone like Stern has. Right. So, so and we've seen we've seen the videos of Stern has the sort of like the humongous assembly line where each person is doing one function as the game moves down the line. Now, am I right in assuming that going from quad to octo? Is that people have rumored that I don't I don't know if you share what that actually is. Is it that many people are working on the game at one station, or is is it a trade secret that we can't hear about? I, I think I think it's pretty obvious that it is uh, a collaborative effort, uh, an agile form of an assembly line versus you know the the old kind of traditional where it goes down a line and everyone has you know their individual components, etc. And, you know, through the tests that we've been doing and all of the other experience that we have in manufacturing and uh, the consultants that we have in other areas of the business that we brought into to look at this, you know, this for our space, for what we're going to do with all of our innovations and standardization we're going to do on all the components uh, amongst all the different titles, this is what's going to work best for us. And uh, I'm really excited to, to get that going and, uh, you know, if some of the other manufacturers want to copy us, then, you know, the sincerest form of flattery in many ways. Right. Have you guys built a game from, you know, A to Z using this new form just to sort of see, like, you know, how feasible it is and that, you know, we can do this and we can crank out this many games and we can start to see uh, or set expectations for our, our manufacturing capabilities? Uh, yes and no. Our, um, our R&D... And our development process is very different than, you know, probably any other company would kind of attempt this. And the reason is, is that uh, it's sort of like a horse race. you got, you know, 25 different areas that are moving forward at different um, sort of speeds and they have different goals and sprints. Um, and while we do have focal points uh, where a lot of those come together from time to time, um, the way that we've done development, uh, most of this manufacturing and getting set up will happen a little later this year, but mm -hmm. it will be very, uh, it will be very natural because we're already doing a lot of those right now in the separate development processes. It's bringing it together. Of course, there's going to be some, as with any manufacturing, uh, new manufacturing setup, there's going to be some, some aches and pains. And but I think that we've we've already. Uh, done a lot of development uh, to and planning to try to avoid at least the big ones that that are usually on the radar. So, um, without going into more trade secrets uh, and sort of exactly where we are and how we're going to set this up, that's that's probably the the best I can give you. Sure, Robert, I'm curious because you know you've been in this hobby for a few years and you you've you've stated that you guys have done market research and that you believe, and, and I've made this same accusation on my show, that people are paying a lot for products and they're not necessarily getting what they pay for. And part of me is like torn. I'm, I'm curious to your opinion on how can a company you know, start selling $9,000 machines without putting that much value into the game, but people buy them, right? We see, we, we see games when the theme is right, 
sell out before people even see it. And is the buyer of pinball just doesn't really care or is the, the company just taking advantage of people's fear or missing out on a limited edition? What do you think causes this feeding frenzy to get something that's really expensive, but you, it's, you're, you'd be hard pressed to see the value in it? Because the game hasn't well, changed I, much in so long. Yeah, so, I mean, that's very insightful. And all I'll say really is that I, I don't see why it can't be, you know, both. I think the, the hobby is dysfunctional from the point of view of, of the clientele uh, and the customers uh, and, and just as dysfunctional in, in, you know, still how we um, deal with our, you know, the, our competitors, you know, the different manufacturers and how they do things internally. And I think you put all that dysfunction together, and I think, uh, in, well, I consider Pinside part of that dysfunction as well, uh, and, and not having a, a mainstream form of, of communication uh, in the hobby between the customers and the manufacturers. So you have all this dysfunction, and this is what you get. And so as I stated when we first started this project, uh, is that you know I fully intend to rub people the wrong way um, and come in and, and create some, some order out of the chaos and that's not going to be easy. Uh, and it's, and it, as you can see, uh, there's been a lot of inexplicable decisions that, that we've made or done um, that have come along the way. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to do uh, is get to a point where we can share our story in a, in a very open, public way. And that's the five days of deep root. And, but getting there is not something in this hobby that you can do without you know, saying a few things here or there, or trying to explain in the limited way that you can, why you're doing certain things or where you're coming from or that you actually have a passion for pinball and you're not just here to make a buck or to write off, you know, something on your taxes. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to have their opinions. Uh, and But we know this is that they're going to be the first ones in line to buy a Duper machine. And uh, we're, we're very excited to sell it to them. Right. Well, let's speaking of, of inexplicable decisions, I mean, we have to talk a little bit about John and J-Pop. And so... A lot of the actually internally we call him J Popalicious, but um, J Popalicious. Okay, yes. so I'm curious. I, I got a few questions around this because I don't want to beat a dead horse. We we all know that when the company sort of surfaced, you know, John was included as as one of the the team members, and and I've always said, I mean, I, I as someone who's always thought that John has a very unique skill set within the hobby that needs to be controlled and he needs the right team around him to succeed. He did not have that at Zidware on his own. He bit off more than he could chew. But explain to me, you know, the strategy, knowing that there is a lot of Zidware baggage. And I know you guys have done your best to sort of explain how you guys will help mitigate some of that. There's also been a lawsuit that has gone to court that is still in play. Do you Talk to me through how you weighed working with him and the you know the bad PR that would come with that versus the value you, you believe John can bring to pinball and to Deep Roots venture. Yeah, so one one important thing about Deep Root uh, and something that that I had instituted into the corporate culture before you know we even did this tech project uh, is that uh, employees are not expenses. They're not necessary evils. Uh, they're people that I fully intend to bring into an environment where they can grow. Uh, they can, you know, be forgiven. Um, they can be remade again. And they can be built up uh, and be allowed to unleash 
themselves and their talents in the best way possible. I, I have, I had, and, and still have a lot of issues with with J-pop. Uh, what what happened uh, through a just a series of of bad decisions? Um, it is what it is at this point. Uh, I'm not going to be able to go back and change uh, anything that J-pop did, and neither is he. I think what we did is when he first came in, we just decided. What can we do? What can we do with the current situation? And for me, uh, I, I had every opportunity, like Dutch uh, and like Pinball Brothers do now, is just to say, "Hey, look, I'm, sucks. You were, you know, you lost your money, or you're not going to get your game. But that's just how it is, and we're moving on." I mean, I, I could have done that, but I decided to take money out of my pocket and take on the J-pop issue, um, and to try to provide an opportunity for the people that. Uh, did not get the better end of the bargain with him. Uh, tried to make them, uh, give them something rather than nothing. And while, you know, the, the plaintiff's case still goes on, so I can't talk about that for legal reasons, uh, we have had uh, an enormous amount of the the people who were not a part of that case um, provide positive feedback, uh, filed claims, and are going to get um, something rather than nothing at the end of the day. And uh, while they're not very public about uh, about their support um, and their their desire to finally be made uh, somewhat whole, um, I think at the end of the day that we've done our best to try to uh, balance a very difficult situation and to try to uh, make make amends. And at the end of the day, uh, John internally uh, is a designer. Um, he gets along well with everyone. Uh, there are some days that are a little bit more difficult than than others, and uh, but I think uh, he's he's a creative genius who has a certain style. We want that style as a part of our platform. And I have a personal commitment that Magic Girl and Raza and AIW uh, will be amazing machines that a lot of people will want uh, to grace their houses with uh, after we have our final touches on them to bring them back down to earth. But uh, still amazing works of art in their own uh, in their own right. So a couple of questions I have, um, Robert, is so the first part when you talk about, you know, you saw the J-pop Zidware sort of quagmire that he got himself in and you saw the, you know, the, the angry buyers who weren't getting games and you've decided to take money out of your pocket to give some sort of restitution to those who, are, who have um, been impacted. Now, I guess the question I have is like, what was the why, right? When you're starting your company and you have to ask like why do that when you could start with a clean slate like what did you see in those games in particular right because you could even have john come on board and just design a new game and not have to even worry about the old baggage but what was it you saw in in magic girl or raza or alice in wonderland that said you know what like this is going to be worth it yeah, that's a hard one to answer because, uh, you know, I have some biased feelings uh, about that. I mean, these have now become my games in many ways. They're, they're my personal passion to see these games uh, through to fruition and to do what no other person or pinball company could ever do. And that is to, to get J-pop focused on, on what J-pop does best and to bring these games, uh, you know, to, to customers who, and many of them who, who want to see them, who want to play them and, and experience those very, very unique, diverse worlds. Uh, I think there was a lot of uh, discussion back when we first started um, wondering whether J-pop was the right um, designer to start with, but you have to roll with the punches. I mean, at that time, there, 
there weren't any designers available or, or willing to come on board. Um, I think over time, as we've continued to prove ourselves and bring people in and show them what we're doing and they get all excited, I think it's been a lot easier to get more and more designers who want a very loving, collaborative home here at Deep Root and just want to have fun, you know, making great pinball machines. And I think that we've made that that very honest and open pitch to all of the designers. And I, I think even if we hadn't started with John um, or J-Pop, I think that uh, we would have ended up taking him on anyway. I mean, I, I still think that John has a lot to give um, to the industry. I, I don't think that people will, some people will ever forgive him. And, you know, that's that's their right. They have the absolute right to do that. But for us, uh, J-Pop has a place here. Uh, you know, that his style and his creativity uh, really has been an energy behind the scenes to try to, um, you know, create some amazing designs. Right. And, and have you ever had moments, so if you look at John's career, I mean, he, he hasn't had a ton of games, but the games he has um, put out into the world have always been very celebrated. And his time at Bally Williams um, was a moment where he, he brought a lot of magic into the pinball world. Have you ever asked him, Robert, like, John, like, what was it like? Like, you're a designer. He's a great art director. Um, you know, whether or not he's good at doing the mechanisms or the engineering of some of the things in a game has... has do you find it hard for him to be honest about where his abilities stop and where he needs a team of people to help him and almost remove him at some point from the process to get the game done? Because we heard a lot of, of that occurred at Bally Williams where like, you know, there was a point where like people just need to take it from him and finish it. Do you feel like you're there with the, the, the Zidware games or like what's it been like? So I'll answer two separate issues that you brought up. First about Williams Valley was a very caustic, nasty, competitive, um, destructive corporate culture when it came to designs. So that is not a place that I would see, you know, a personality like uh, J-Pop, who is, you know, more eccentric uh, and shining. And I think that a lot of the stories you hear were just because he just was so different and didn't fit into the to that corporate culture and, you know, from Barry and Dennis and, you know, uh, other people who, you know, were in that machine, they, I mean, even today, Dennis was in town and he was telling me how amazing, you know, it is here at Deeper uh, compared to the Williams Valley days and how open and collaborative and fun it is now instead of being secretive and, you know, and, and nasty. And so as we fast forward to the current environment with, with John, uh, John, like, everyone else is going to fight for his passion i mean he he really thinks that you know certain things should go a certain way and if you push back i mean he's he's going to fight for his passion I, I would expect that from everyone i mean i i do the same i mean many times people have come up and and told me parts of my you know vision uh is just not going to work and and i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna push back because it's my passion and so i don't i don't begrudge him the the ability to do that, what I'm not going to allow is for him to take down morale or to override uh, an engineer uh, when it's the engineer's purview um, or to, um, you know, torpedo the company itself when it comes to whether or not this game is, is going to be a successful game or not. But I think overall, um, those are small little side arguments uh, that we quickly resolve and we move on. I mean, otherwise, you know, John, when he's here, uh, is, 
is just like anyone else. He He's here early. He leaves late. Uh, he's passionate about Deep Root Pinball. He's passionate about his designs. And uh, he he's focused on getting back to business um, in the role that I think he even realizes he needs to be in. Right. How how often is he there? I'm not going to talk about that because of the litigation, but okay. um, he uh, he typically does not work when he's in Illinois. So he he does try to come um, for sprints uh, as much as he can because all of the work he does is basically here in Texas. Okay. So when he's not here, uh, he's not a part of the process. And for John, that's you know that gets almost like you know slow, painful death. Right. Um, he's just so passionate about pinball. So. Right. Um, but anyway, that's that's right. the answer I'm going to give on that. Okay. And you know, I mean, you Deep Root is his. I want to say his third chance to get these games into the homes. And look, people want these games. I mean, I've said it from day one. I mean, I, there's not a pinball person out there that doesn't look at these games and say, I don't want it. I mean, they just want it to work. And so I'm curious, as one of the, I feel like I'm one of the very few people that's actually stood over a Magic Girl for hours, um, what it's been like unraveling that game, Robert. And you said like, bring the games back down to earth. So there's clearly things that might have been over ambitious by John that might not just physically work, right? So where where's the current state of let's just think talk magic girl. Like where's the current state of getting the game back down to a place where it's still going to be a beautiful sexy J-pop game, but it's going to function. Right. So um the, the great thing about the way that we develop here is we take uh, largely the role that was left to the designer in, in, in other companies and in, in, in prior companies, and we give it to other people. Uh, so it's more of a, co- a collaborative team effort. So Quinn uh, is, is basically our storyboarder and scripter. And so he's come up with a very uh, alternate, diverse um, use of the Magic Girl universe. And then we have our artists and our animators that then come into the process and, and understand the scope and the direction that we want to take for something like that. Then we bring in our mechanical engineers and our techs, and we basically you know, strip Magic Girl to its core and rebuild it again. And a lot of the things that, that John didn't get right uh, are things on the list that we, that we tackle as we rebuild it from the ground up. We want to try to keep... The Magic Girl experience um, with with generally in, in the direction that John wanted to go. Um, but we fully realized that uh, the only way the Magic Girl is going to be an amazing machine and be graced in customers' houses is if we create uh, the best Magic Girl out there possible. And so as we've looked at some of these mech issues, uh, we've come up with some unique uh, design uh, unique designs to kind of solve some of them and others we've just taken out just because it's not worth it to distract from an amazing you know pinball experience um, with things that just don't feel right and don't work and don't click with that theme and and uh, in the layout right any of the can you speak to any of that or am I, am I spoiling the reveal when it it when it's you know when you do it and any mech set we know that I'm always curious about that big middle levitation chamber where the ball shoots up the middle between the ramp and is supposed to be held by the automatron. Is that is is have you guys been able to figure out any of sort of John's use of magnets in the game or was it just too hard to get some of that stuff working? Yeah, I mean, I think JJP's uh, uh, concentric circles is a, is a good example of something that probably should have been left on the 
you know, the cutting room floor uh, right. before it was shown to the public. I think this is another example of something the way it was engineered just didn't work. Right. I think we have probably four or five different ways now that we've kind of figured out how we're going to get a ball to levitate in midair without it shooting out of the uh, glass like a cannon right. um, or, or denting the play field under it. So um, we're, we're moving forward. If, if we can't get it to work at the end of the day, we can't get it to work. But it's never been done ever in the history of pinball. Uh, and so we're almost everything we're doing has never been done in the history of pinball. So uh, that's why the five days of deep root, I think people are going to either uh, check themselves into an insane asylum because they just can't take it. Uh, or they're gonna they're gonna see the next century of pinball change uh, uh, and never look back. So I think this this mech is a good example of of, of how people might uh, react to the innovation that that we're putting into these machines to do a lot of things that have never been done before in in unique engineering ways. Right. Very. It's very exciting to hear because I've always believed too that you know John's games are visually stunning and you don't need too much magic to make them magical and and i think we've seen that with a lot of his older titles there's not a ton going on but even just like the disappearing magnet gene you know in front of the genie on on toad and just that stuff i feel like is missing from a lot of modern pinball and, and just thinking about the different things a ball can do under the glass that make people go wow and, th and that to me is what i think is missing from a lot of modern pinball um, so excited to hear you guys are, are, are tackling it and also incorporating a lot of that magic. So let's talk about the five days of, of deeper because and what we can expect. Because I know, you know, I, obviously I don't expect you to give away a lot, but when this is going to happen around TPF 2019, how many games are you guys planning to show? Uh, are we going to see any Magic Girls or Razas? Like, what do you, do you know? We know that the Zidware games exist, so we could ask like if we're going to see those. That's not spoiling whether it's a, you know we don't know the other titles. So, so, so Magic Girl and Raza will be um, in the initial launch. Uh, Alice in Wonderland will not. Okay, and how are you guys? And Robert, you've looked at the marketplace and you see that you know collectors and limited editions and collectors editions. There is this ability to make different versions of games, and you've been on. Uh, the record for saying there might even be a $50,000 Alice in Wonderland. Um, so how are you guys going to handle, knowing what you know about the market, um, collectors' desires to have like limited edition games? You know, I've always approached pinball very differently uh, than the other companies. And I think this is going to be a, a very interesting um, period to see after we launch um, uh, how the other companies react. Uh, whether they follow suit or whether they just try to compete and lose, essentially, to you know our, our concept of of design and and, and sourcing um, and marketing, uh, the types of titles we have, uh, the price variations uh, and the feature variations. So I, it's really hard to kind of talk about that without you know going through the five D's of deep root. Um, and, and what we're going to do, because there's definitely a competitive advantage there. How many days uh, is I know TPF, that some of Robert? our stuff is, TPF, is late. Is TPF five days or four? I'm, like, I'm always curious. Like, are there so five? I, I mean, the fifth day of Deep Root, which is what we promised, will be TPF. Oh, okay. Um, I, I so do not know if we're leading the four up days it. that precede it will be at the beginning of the year uh, or it will be right before TPF. It really depends on, on uh, we have a very ambitious uh, launch that we have planned. Um, 
while it would be nice to get everything that we want at launch, uh, sometimes, you know, reality sets in. And so we have some contingency plans to maybe do a little less here or there. And so it really depends how we get through the, the rest of the year, get the manufacturing uh, ability up, manufacture a bunch of games, make sure everything, uh, all the you know bells and whistles are there and all the kinks are out of the system uh, to, before we decide to move forward with the, the the beginning four days of deeper, but the fifth day of deeper will be TPF 2019. Okay, so they're not consecutive days. There are going to be five sort of milestone moments that c- culminate with a reveal of product at TPF. Sort of. I, I mean, I, I guess that's really a good idea if I could steal it from you. But, um, you know, in my mind, um, more of the five days of deeper is, is more of uh, revealing to the world. Um, both in person and in, you know, social media and, and uh, audiovisual, uh, all the innovations we've done behind the scenes and why we're passionate about pinball and what we've done about it and what we're releasing uh, to the world uh, for their enjoyment. So um, how we do those four days, whether they're consecutive and we do maybe a 30-minute uh, vignette each day or whether they're spread out over a couple months, I, I really haven't made a decision yet. I just know that uh, the five days of Deep Root really culminate in the five different areas that I really want to focus on in, in, in making all of the guys who have bought into this, this, uh, this vision of mine and making them shine and letting people know that there's a lot of great people, talented people behind the scenes here who are working night and day to, 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 you know, make, make my vision come to market and to, to create some great pinball machines. You know, and, and Robert, we've, we've talked a lot about John, but I, I do want to talk about the, the larger company because you've got a lot of people over there, as you said. You have other designers. Walk me through the other things that are being worked on. So you have got Barry, you've got Dennis Norman, um, you have another designer as well. Is it John? Am I making this up? John Norse. John Norse, right. So are they each working on their own projects? And, and if so, you you've seen firsthand that the power that a theme has to create demand in this hobby. It's something I harp on all the time on this show. How have, so are they each working on their own things? And, and how did you guys come to the conclusion of what the first titles would be that, that they would work on? I think that was a very collaborative effort. I think that, uh, you know, I kind of had a vision of different themes that I wanted to see. And, um, at, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the designers have, have been uh, more industrious than I probably would have liked because they're constantly asking for something new to do. So uh, at times I've even had to start inventing things for the designers to do just because they're working so fast and so well and efficiently. Um, I think that pinball is, is, a, is a step to many other tech projects that we want to do, um, but it's, it's the best first one uh, in, in many ways from a business and development side to also just uh, just a fun side. And um, Are there any license so, themes alongside the original Zidware titles or is it all going to be original IP to, to kick things off? Nope, it will be a mix of licensed and unlicensed. And we, we've talked behind the scenes, Robert, about the process of getting a license and and you know, I, I may be wrong at times when I when I may assume that it's easy to get a license. And we, we, we just saw a story this week that Stern outbid Spooky for the Godzilla license. What's yeah, it who like? Do you think, who do you think leaked that story? Uh, was it you? Absolutely. I was, I was very, I was very upset. 
um, and I reached out to Charlie because uh, I wanted to help him. Uh, we have an amazing licensing person who, you know, who goes back uh, almost as far as Roger does, but more in the toy world. But um, our licensing agent is very good at what she does. She's been able to pull a lot of strings for a lot of big licenses for us for a company that isn't even manufacturing pinball machines yet. So um, we we definitely I could write a whole book on on getting into pinball licensing uh, as a side note. Um, probably make even more money than selling pinball machines. But anyway, um, I, I was very disappointed um, by by that. So um, I basically, you know, reached out to Charlie and asked him if he wanted me to, to go to bat for him. And, you know, uh, he was I'm going to let him I'm going to let him comment whether he wants to or not on you know his response. But uh, and then I, I reached out to because uh, Jeff at This Week in Pinball had reached out to me and asked me if I knew anything. And I basically just said, yeah, I was confirmed. Um, and because uh, we were actually interested in uh, in the Godzilla as well for for the new movie coming out and, and doing a deal with Legendary. So unfortunately, everything is shut down um, and it was confirmed to us. So at, the, at, at this point, it's it's a dead issue. But we've been very lucky to get some other very big, uh, very big uh, licenses uh, under our belts. And uh, we're in a bidding war of our own on a, another really big one. So we're, we're really excited about uh, doing some licensing, uh, some good licenses, and then also bringing some unlicensed titles back into it. So, How does the bidding war work? Is it a silent bid auction where you don't know what the other guy is? You get a second right of... I, you know, the second attempt to go over what they say the other bit is like, what's it like? Licensing should be criminal uh, or unethical at, at, at best. Uh, it is absolutely just uh, there. It's 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 a wild west, right, of, of IP because, uh, you know, the licensors have all of the power. There's no confidentiality uh, whatsoever. Uh, so if someone really wanted to figure out what licenses we have, they, it wouldn't take very long for them to call around. And I mean, most of these licensors will just tell you straight out. So, um, and uh, there's no rhyme or reason to anything a licensor wants. I mean, uh, it could be it could be that it could be a silent auction. It could be that they tell the other person and, and try to get the biggest bit just because that's what the licensor is there to do. Uh, it could be where hey, you know. Deep Root, screw you. You don't have any machines, and we're just going to go with someone else who does, you know, who's already manufacturing. I mean, uh, we, we've heard it all. We've seen it all. And so, unfortunately, um, it could be any of the above. Right. Sounds, sounds like a very corrupt process that lends itself to a lot of bribery and shenanigans. So, yeah, it, it sucks. I mean, well, I don't get me wrong. I just want to say we've worked with some great companies uh, and and great you know members behind the scenes with licensing, and they're plugged into the same uh, you know unfair system as everyone else is. And so I, I don't want to I don't want to leave with a sour taste that we're ungrateful uh, because we're very grateful. Uh, we've had a lot of companies, uh, big brands, uh, put a lot of trust in us, and we're very appreciative. And we want to make make them a lot of money. And and make the best product that they're very proud of. Uh, and you know, hey, look, Stern Stern's no different. Um, but I, I think that you know, there's there's ways to kind of use the system, uh, and there's ways to I think be more ethical with it. So um, at the end of the day, I, I know what we're going to do here at Deep Root. So 
Right. Is there? I just have to ask. Uh, big trouble in Little China. Is that is that on the any list of potential themes that you guys would consider? Because I keep saying it would sell, but it, unless someone makes it, we'll never know. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that you've brought up a lot of uh, mainly '80s themes, but uh, that that would be good. I think that uh, a lot of these themes, and the problem with licensing is uh, there are all kind of hiccups you could have, right? So you could get something like a Big Trouble in Little China, but if you can't get Kurt Russell to sign off on it, if there's not already, you know, if it's a vault edition, uh, for instance, then what's the point of making you know Big Trouble in Little China without you know Kurt Russell uh, or Kim Cattrall, etc.? So uh, one of the big problems in licensing is trying to go in and find something that you can afford, that you think that you're going to be able to sell enough to make some money off of. And then you got to start worried about whether the company really wants to license it or not. It's going to be more of an impediment or they're going to be your, you know, your champion. And then lastly, uh, when it comes to actually getting the rights, are the rights available? And are they available to the extent where it makes sense to move forward if, if you can't get some of the rights that that are critical to that license. I mean, it's it, it's a very difficult uh, quagmire to try to go through uh, in pinball uh, because not all licenses, for instance, Harry Potter, um, are available to pinball. And then you start getting to these other issues. Uh, so eventually we're going to get to a point where all the big licenses are done uh, with and it's going to get a lot more competitive to, to really secure uh, high-dollar licenses for future pinball games. A- absolutely. I mean... I think we're already starting to see that. Um, So let me ask you a question, Robert, because this is on this topic. Do you think Jersey Jack should have pursued Pirates of the Caribbean once they learned of the significant restrictions to that license of can't use the main character, can't use a theme song, can't use any clips from all the movies with, you know, it, it seems like they didn't get much and they still decided to make it. Yeah. So I, I mean, Jack and I kind of, had brief conversations back in 2015 and he kind of told me what he thought about my, my kind of vision for JGP back then. And, you know, he's, he's done well since. And so I don't want to comment just because I don't want to rehash that. Uh, I wouldn't have done pirates of the Caribbean. Um, but you know, I, I hope, I hope he at least makes some money off of it. Uh, and it's not a loss. I mean, at this point, I just don't know what, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. I I wish him the best. Uh, I I played it. I, I think it's a very, very detailed game. It would have been nice had they been able to keep, you know, the, the concentric circles because I really like that feature. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, Jack is going to do the best he can with that license. Maybe that was the best license he had at the time. Um, I don't know if it was a passion license for Eric. Um, uh, but, you know, sometimes you just you, you're given a tough hand and you've got to make the best of the hand you have. And um, and it's not an easy thing to do. So. Uh, I, I know behind the scenes, not only just from a licensing point of view, um, but I also know, uh, you know, what goes into making a design and eventually a manufacturer as well, because we've been going through that process as well. Right. How I, difficult it is and all the pitfalls you have at every step throughout the process where things could go really wrong. Right. Um, I, I guess and, what always perplexes me, Robert, is like, it's not like you're given a, a theme you have to make. Like a company goes out and like, actively seeks a license and then you know they they decide if it's if they can get enough to make it and sometimes i feel like you know that's what perplexes me about some of these pinball licenses if you don't get enough i always feel like there needs to be like a a checklist of if we don't get enough of this stuff let's move on to something where we can get a little bit more but we won't 
I w another question I have too, Robert, because you guys have the advantage of in 2018, you probably have a good five years of market research at your disposal around the right way to reveal a game, launch a game, and put a game out there to maximize sales, especially the, you know, the sales window early on. And we've seen everything from the Stern approach, which seems to be the most successful of you don't show your cards until your, you know, the game will ship within two months to Jersey Jack, where it's almost going to be a year now since we've seen pirates and the excitement starts to wane big time. The more you make people wait, what, what can we expect from deep root in terms of reveal to shipment and how long that window will be? Um, the very first part of our, our, and the entire scope of our our project uh, that will be some of much of which will be disclosed in the five days of deep root uh, is tens of pages long uh, in in very intricate detail and one of the very first sections that I, I came up with was the marketing section so yes it has perplexed me that again so many of the manufacturers including you know the big boy on the block uh, Stern. Uh, continue to make so many mistakes um, and are successful despite themselves. Um, I think it's going to be a little different when you have someone who has really put a lot of thought into marketing pinball, uh, expanding pinball, redefining pinball. I think it's going to be kind of hard to kind of catch up at, at that point and from a marketing standpoint to try to to try to match. I mean, some of that, I mean, like you said, you know, four or five years of market advantage and looking what other people have done and their mistakes I mean, imagine if someone really gets their marketing right, it could be four to five years where you have to kind of tread water to try to get your marketing um, back in, you know, back up to a, to a level that will, you know, remain in the minds of customers who, you know, you desperately want to buy your games. Um, and so, you know, marketing has been one of the things that I started with, and it's going to be one of the things that, that I think people are going to see is going to be very, it's going to be a, it's not going to be a, uh, marketing in that we're, we're doing a lot of gimmicks and we're trying to pull the wool over a customer's eyes and, you know, we're just pushing pinball left and right. I think it's going to be more of, uh, of a bargain proposition, right? Why, why buy a machine from another company that doesn't have all these innovations and you can't, it's not a deep root machine, right? I think that is probably going to be one of the biggest upfront uh, marketing challenges that uh, a lot of other companies are going to have to face. Right. But you can't, you can't deny the success within selling pinball machines the shorter the window from reveal to shipment has always been beneficial there, there's never been a case where like like waiting a really long time helped us so I, i'm i'm just curious like within your marketing are do you, is there any concern that you might show too much that's not quite that's not ready to manufacture in the, you know in the in the short term or because part of your desire must be to show like like a lot of impact of what we're planning, but you know how you must be weighing how much do we show now, and how much do we hold back because it's not that game might not ship for a year. So we're planning to do a little reveal at Expo, but since I don't think Rob has put up um, the seminar uh, description, I don't want to steal his thunder. Um, but it's just a small glimpse into what to expect, and it'll be our last formal communication before the five days of deep root. Um, I'm going to answer your question the best way I can, and that is to be very succinct in that uh, I have no intention of, of being entrapped 
in, in the pip uh, of releasing something before it's ready to ship. Um, I, I fully believe that pinball machines, uh, a large amount of the sales are impulse buys. And I would love to fulfill that need to uh, take pocket out of a, you know, uh, take the money out of a pocket and uh, and give them a great product in return. And so uh, we're, our intent is, is when we launch a game and someone comes to buy it, that they're going to have that game uh, shipped in two weeks or less. And I've, I've stood by that from you know, the beginning and I'm going to continue to stand by that. And if they don't get it in two weeks, we're going to start giving them money uh, for um, for us not fulfilling the promise that we made. So, well, I mean, but you've got to, that, is that realistic? Let's say you get 500 orders from Magic Girl right on day one. Um, two weeks to the first customer gets it, but there's going to have to be a little bit of weight. And I think people, people don't mind that. I, you know, what I've noticed in the industry is people know that they might have to get online just because of the realistic nature of manufacturing, right? So, it, the first people will get it in two weeks, but there might still be a wait, right? I mean, how many games, you can't get everyone a game in two weeks. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that we'll have, you know, I really don't know uh, how I want to approach something like that. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, the easiest way would be just to, to just only have the games that are available to ship in two weeks and then, you know, wait list. Um, I, I fully intend before we release a game that we will already have had uh, manufactured behind the scenes, what we think would be um, a good lead uh, into sales um, without going overboard. So there's lots of ways you can deal with that issue. Uh, but yes, you're right. I mean, it takes time to build a pinball machine. Uh, and if you get a lot of uh, orders uh, and interest in a, in a machine um, that, you know, you might, in, in a worst case scenario, have some, have some lead time. Uh, I want that that lead time to be as short as possible. And, and we've tried to balance that with giving the customer the better end of the bargain. Uh, if there's going to be a long lead time. Sure. And I think Andrew highway has ruined two weeks forever within the pinball <laughs> marketing world. So you might want to just say three weeks to be safe. So, um, so really, real, real quick about yeah. that is I actually heard that, uh, after I had actually made that statement, then realized, Oh, I, so who was stealing from who, I guess. But, uh, anyway, uh, no, I didn't even know that, that Andrew had said that when I first said it, but two weeks is a reasonable amount of time for us to make a pinball machine for someone uh, and to get it shipped out to them. And so I think it's a very doable thing on our end. Robert, let me ask you a question about some of the themes that have been out there in the world, because I know you've provided some commentary on trying to help Barry and Yap get the big Lebowski out into the world, because we know there's demand there. We know there's demand for the alien theme. We know there was even demand for Predator. Um, seeing some of these themes and seeing them be a, associated with failed attempts to actually get them into market properly. Um, have you, you, and you, you commented on this about ha meeting with Barry and Yap about potentially helping them out. Are you, would you consider, because we know people love these themes, a, a chance to kind of get them made properly at Deep Root within your platform and, and, and your approach? So I'm not going to talk about the specifics um, that I, I spoke uh, with them about, um, but I would say that if we were to approach this uh, just from a logistical point of view, it would be very difficult to make the games as they currently exist uh, using our platform. Uh, there would have to be some changes, uh, probably some, some substantial changes. 
versus something that was meant to be designed uh, using using our platform and, and format. So I think there's some problems there. I also think that, you know, licensors are not living in a vacuum that, that licensors uh, very uh, much um, dislike when their brand uh, is, is subject to, uh, you know, these issues. Uh, and I'm just going to leave it at issues because, I mean, these are pretty s- serious transgressions um, that have been committed and the brands didn't ask for it. And they don't deserve it. So it might even be that some of these brands might not even be available anymore. Right, they um, might just to be put into pinball. not want to do pinball again because of the experience the first time around. And to be honest, you know, look, every every licensor we've gone to, we've had to really sell why they should, you know, choose deeper. Uh, and we've even had, you know, Stern's like, why? We've we've been asked over and over again. It's not a secret, you know, why why shouldn't we just go with Stern? Well. You know, I have some really good answers that have really turned some heads and uh, and won some uh, some deals. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, when you have you know a licensor who's experienced this in pinball, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, uh, it might be it might be a, a mile too far at that point. So, I, and I don't know about Alien, and and I don't know about the Big Lebowski. I don't think either. I think Alien speaks more to me than the Big Lebowski does, even though I, I do like the movie. Um, as far as a pinball, but I think it's already been done. I mean, I think there's so many other opportunities for deep root to and stories and, and visions for us to go down uh, past for that we really don't even need to rehash that. Right. There's so many amazing. Predators just... uh, is another example of a movie I really liked, um, and and it's unfortunate how it turned out. But at this point, uh, what's done is done. Right. Yeah. No. I, I I sort of agree. I mean, it's it's there's so many other even good Schwarzenegger movies out there or sci-fi films out there that you could start anew without having to to, to erase people's memories of, of the bad launches. So, Robert, what's curious to me, too, about the current pinball marketplace, because there's a lot of competition, right? And I'm always, I'm always, like, perplexed as to, like, how long it actually does take a pinball company to die when they clearly have run the business into the ground, where the money's gone. I just saw a, a note from... Barry and Yap today where you know it's a pinball company you want to make a game you want to put a product in people's homes when when the money evaporates because of mismanagement and legal problems uh, it sucks the life out of the hobby and, and I think you know why do you think that happens in this hobby in particular because I, I follow a lot of stuff like cars and, and other interest areas I've never seen the ability for companies to hang on as long as they do without just saying it's done <laughs> you know like the our attempt to do this is not going to work out the money's gone but people are still holding on to a lot of these companies that's a tough one i i think there's um, there's some functional reasons uh as in uh legal that a lot of people let them get away from uh away with it uh there's also probably um a side where you know, government authorities who usually step in in a situation like this in many industries isn't, of course, present in in a pinball in, in not only the U.S. but other countries. I think that a lot of businesses uh, limp on uh, in other industries. So I, I think that this is um, I think this is kind of normal in, in some ways, even if it's in the pinball industry. But I think that a lot of people in the pinball industry um, also allow it to happen. And, um, you know, I think that even though we've, a lot of people would probably argue that we've turned a corner and no one will ever throw money down on a project, you know, like, 
like the several that have come and gone, uh, I, I think it's ripe for, you know, people to forget. Uh, and, and there's likely to be a time where this is going to happen again. Uh, I think it's just, it's just human nature and it's how these things kind of go about. I mean, it's perplexing to us. And, uh, you know, we at Deep Root have tried to do things, you know, the right way from the beginning and not using other people's money and, you know, trying to keep, you know, things uh, behind the scenes until we're ready to show. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're still subject to the same uh, negative and, and destructive players in the industry as anyone else is. Right. I have a question, Robert, um, on the collector side, because you're still a pinball fan and, and player and collector. If over the last two questions, do you still buy new in box pinball machines? And if you were to pick your favorite game that came out over the last two years, which one would it be? So I I haven't <laughs> I wanted to buy a TNA from Charlie, but that that was kind of a funny uh, back and forth on that one. Uh, that would be a game I, I would love to have. Um, I've been too busy building our own designs recently and focusing on them to kind of uh, want to buy anything. Not a big Iron Maiden fan or Guardians of the Galaxy or Star Wars or some of the others that have come out recently from Stern. In fact, the only Stern I own, other than Ghostbusters, which we have here for a specific reason at the office, is the Ripley's, believe it or not, which I have at the house and it's actually, you know, uh, one of my favorite games. But I'm not, I'm not a you know big fan of a lot of their other kind of new in box. I do have two America's Most Haunted, not just one. Uh, that's another interesting story. Um, I would love, yeah, I, hate, I don't like The Hobbit. Uh, I know a lot of people love The Hobbit, and I know that, you know, uh, Jack is continuing to try to make it better and better, and I give him props for that. Um, but I'm just not a personal fan uh, of of a lot of things about The, the Hobbit, uh, even though I love the theme. I would love to have it dialed in maybe one day. Um, I, I've played it on location once or twice. Uh, both of them, there were broken components and you know lo- balls that got stuck, um, which was kind of a bummer. But uh, I think it was really inventive. Uh, I like some of Pat Lawler's stuff, so um, uh, definitely a good one. Um, as far as uh, you know, some of the other new boxes, just not impressed. Um, and you know, I just can't wait to. Most of my collection at home is is you know 90s Williams Valley, so I, I can't wait to to start moving some of those maybe to the office to let some other people play, employees play with them while I wait to uh, fill up the spaces at the house with uh, with some deeper games. Right, and so let's talk about the Ghostbusters you have hanging up. Um, what's the reason for it? I think you said it, but I, I've and I've I still think no, it's one we were of just we were just we were just doing a little trolling. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah. So the the design of Ghostbusters, I still think Ghostbusters is one of the greatest themes ever for pinball, and I think universally, the feedback on the game is it's one of the most beautiful machines. I mean, Zombietti artwork on that brings it to life. It does have one of the most world under glass looks to any Stern, but then you go to shoot it, and you're like, oh, why am I frustrated more than having fun? And I, and I think that I am assuming is what you guys are looking at is. What, what's wrong here from a design standpoint that could have made this game more fun? Yeah, so uh, one, one quick uh, thing. I, I do like Batman 66. I, I, I have played that quite a few times. Uh, I haven't played the, was it the SLE? They all play the same. <laughs> it's just... Yeah. I mean, so anyway, it's, it, it's, it's a fun game. They, they did a good job with that game, so I'm going to give them props where, where props are, are warranted. But as far as Ghostbusters is concerned, that's just... 
I love the the theme. I don't. I personally don't like the artwork. I know a lot of people uh, like it, but I I'm not real big on the artwork. So that's sort of a turnoff for me. I would have preferred something a little bit more realistic. Um, but anyway, as far as the play is concerned, I don't know. It's just not a layout that kind of it kind of sp- speaks to me. You know, right. um, we have it right next to you know No Good Gophers, which is you know a real fun kind of quirky layout. Though I know a lot of people are not real happy about it, but um, for me, I'm, I'm more of a quirky kind of layout kind of guy. So uh, like my fire and brimstone uh, design uh, is a lot of flow and orbits. And, you know, that's something else um, that I really like, like T2 from, uh, you know, from Steve Ritchie is a, is a fun uh, game that I like to play a lot just because I like, you know, fast action and flow. So Ghostbusters doesn't really have that for me. And so it's just one of those that a lot of my other guys like to play it, and, but I'm just not a big fan. Right. Well, Robert, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We were at the hour point, which is usually where I keep this show or else I fall into the, <laughs> the, the head-to-head pinball two-hour. I, I can do the Marty Laugh Track for another hour and extend it, but we'll, we'll keep it at an hour. I really appreciate you being the 250th guest. I, I appreciate that you listen to the show. Um, I'm very curious and excited and anxious and looking forward to where things net out with Deep Root. I, I, I do think competition within this hobby is, is important. I do think people looking at pinball a little bit differently is important. You know, we're, we're playing a game that doesn't even have internet connectivity in 2018, right? I mean, it's, there are areas of this game that could definitely use innovation, but you also can't innovate too much because people still want pinball. So I'm very curious to see how you sort of balance those two things. And Robert, when's the next time we, we're going to get the official thing? Is it Expo? You said a little something will happen there? Yeah, uh, we'll, I'll be at Expo with the other four designers. And uh, we'll, we'll you know do a little Q&A and we'll give a little tease here or there to um, um, some things. And but that'll be our last formal communication before um, the five days of deep root uh, later this year, early next year. And uh, by the way, I kind of I kind of planned. Uh, I hope you get a laugh out of this because I mean it in a, in a jovial way. But I was preparing for the uh, interview uh, today by listening to the very first FU deep root uh, episode <laughs> that you took down. And I, I will say this: I'm glad that you've you've grown and uh, you've kind of uh, warmed up to us a little bit. And we'd uh, love to invite you down when we have our uh, our five days of deep root event, and uh, uh, and uh, so you can see for yourself. I mean, I, I I will take you up on that that invitation. And and you know, like I think this show at times we you know I think all pinball people we we sometimes become a product of or a victim of our own emotions around these things. And, you know, as I've studied your company over the, you know, the past X amount of months, you know, I, I don't think you can take any other approach, but to wait and see what you guys do. I mean, you haven't asked for my money. You haven't asked for anyone else's money. You're not, you're not taking pre-orders. You're not doing anything other than trying to correct the wrongs that happen at Zidware. So I'd rather live in a world to your point, where we try to fix problems and bring new solutions out into the world. Um, and I also, you know, I, I, so for that reason alone, like I don't want to have podcasts up there that are, that are slamming your company. <laughs> and I, you know, but that doesn't mean because I'm about to do another podcast 
where I'm really just asking for Dutch Pinball to go away <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I won't stop when people, you know, their, their latest correspondence today basically said three things. It said, we're out of money. Don't sue us. Good night. <laughs> like, it's like, go away. I, I just want companies that will bring us products. At the end of the day, they're toys that people love. They're, they're, they're things that we're very passionate about. And you should just get what you pay for in life. No matter whether, whether it's a Big Mac or a pinball machine, you should get what you pay for. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys develop. And, and we look forward to the future. I mean, there's, there's, I, I think you have converted me into someone who is more curious than condemning. So um, you have that. Well, it, it was great motivation. Uh, and, you know, I look, I, I think that everyone has a place in this hobby. Uh, and, um, while I haven't been happy or agree with everything that you've said, uh, I think that you, you, you do a great job of putting it out there. Uh, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not afraid to come on and answer your questions. And I, I, I like to think that we had a good time today and uh, we can have many more, uh, and, uh, and laugh about all of this in the future. So, yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, this, this is, this is just a dialogue about pinball and, you know, and, and I, and there's a lot of other manufacturers out there that refuse to come on this show. And it, it always perplexes me because I think if you look at every interview we've done, I mean, we treat everybody with respect. And we just try to have a, you know, an unfiltered dialogue about what's going on in the hobby. And, and I think that's why people listen. If, you well, know, you know what's going to happen next, Chris? They're going to say that you were too easy on me today. I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you, you just know, can't win, but, can it, but it's hard because there's nobody can – you're not to blame for anything. I mean, it's, it, I think I asked the right questions about John. I think people are going to wait and see. I think, but again, as I've said on this show, if you unravel the mystery of Zidware, people will buy the games they, and they all yep. know that they, no one will say, I won't go in on one and, and they all want the stuff. So I, I actually, and I said this, I think you made the right move just from a marketing standpoint to get access to probably some of the best artwork ever done before by Zombie Yeti. And I just think if you just put that on anything remotely working, it's going to sell. I know this hobby. It will sell. And, and that's... Ooh, that's, I have a teaser for you if you, if, you don't, if you don't mind. Hit me up. So Magic Girl, the problem with Magic Girl, and then what's beautiful, it's very 2D. It's very line art, a vector, uh, kind of washed colors. So the problem we've had in, in getting it more into a 3D animation realm is trying to bridge that gap. And I can tell you that it took a couple tries, but Matt Armstrong up in Utah, who is our, our art director, is such a phenomenal talent. And I, I, to I told him uh, that, you know, I thought Magic Girl was sexy before, and he brought her to a 3D kind of very, like, you know, next door kind of gal kind of look. Uh, but still keeping that mysterious part uh, and, and, you know, cute and, and everything. And so I, I'm, I'm so excited to show the world, uh, you know, some of this transition we took from some of the art that, that Jeremy did and really taking it now into the modern kind of video game world uh, and using 3D animations and, and, and bridging those two very different illustration gaps. So a uh, little tidbit there. Uh, I hope y'all uh, enjoy her too. Can you just hold off on revealing that until I sell my Magic Girl Playfield and translate? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Robert, again, I appreciate this. I appreciate you know our conversations off the record. So we'll stay in touch. And as you know, anytime you want to come on the show and share some new stuff, just just let me know. A, a pleasure. Absolutely, it has been a pleasure. Take care, Chris, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a good night. 
Right, you too. Bye-bye.